the spirit, he or she can be a foxy character, right? Uh, Hello, I'm Mark Standish, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, where I'm a junior member. We're gathering friends and members of our ICS community here on this podcast to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. This semester, we're asking senior members and junior members to continue their conversations outside the classroom. Often, this looks like staying after class to hash out a final question, having conversations all the way down the very long hallway, or meeting for coffee to workshop an idea that was born from class discussions. It's encounters like this, big and small, that make up the spirit of an ICS education. My name is Theron Tolsma, and I'm also an ICS junior member. Today we're back with Bob Sweetman and Gideon Strauss for part three of our introductory series on reformational philosophy. If you have no idea what reformational philosophy is, or if you're intrigued to hear Gideon and Bob's take on the tradition, stick with us for the next few weeks to see what happens. If you're just joining us, you should start from the beginning of our series to catch up with the conversation so far. Now, on with the show. Inspiration can strike at unexpected moments. And for a student, there's nothing quite like the feeling of something clicking, of an idea long percolating at the back of your mind, finally rushing to the fore, of connections being forged. So for our first segment, we're asking our new junior members to share some enlivening, entertaining, and challenging moments when they've experienced just such sparks of inspiration. Today's question, what has been the most surprising reading that you've come across, or Thing that's happened during your classes here. In my undergrad, you in my in- intro philosophy course, you learn. I learned Plato, but not Aristotle, really. So I knew Plato fairly well, like the fundamental, like ideas. But I, I hadn't read Aristotle till like too recently, so. I just, I, I find that I like Aristotle a lot more than Plato. And even though I like, I'd never read it and, and, and you always, like, I always forget that it really just, everything goes back to them. Like, especially in a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, Rebecca's classes, like the beauty class and this Kant class, it all goes back to techne and all the, the practical side, which, I, I I think it's just because I enjoy the more practical side of philosophy than the than um, the more abstract metaphysical stuff. I think. 
A surprising reading I did find in the works of Herman Doiviert. <laughs> uh, it's surprising in the sense that, first of all, I did not know of this philosopher before I came to ICS. Uh, but second, surprising in the sense that his ideas are so hip. <laughs> there is so much potential um, to be like re to to be reintroduced in the contemporary discussions in um, phenomenology. Even um, I'm also in uh, Neil Deru's class this semester, um, and. He's teaching the fundamentals of phenomenology, and there he talked a little bit about his interest in reading Doiviert as a phenomenologist, first and foremost. I can see why, um, because his uh, Doiviert's uh, way of seeing ontology as meaning, it just opens up this whole space of dynamic, um, say, interaction. Well, so I'm going to tell you a story. Three weeks into ICS, I'm feeling like pretty good. Like, so, you know, I'm taking ref fill. At first, I'm just like, wow, okay, philosophy. Yep, this is a thing. Like, this is the thing that I'm doing now. Um, so I'm feeling like pretty good about myself. Um, and then I sign up to your presentation in reformational philosophy. And one of the readings is Stavat Mater by Julia Kristeva. And uh, little did I know what I was in for there. So I was definitely surprised by it um, because she's got like two columns, one where she's doing, well, I guess they're both doing philosophy, but one is like more normal and one is stream of consciousness. And that was really revolutionary. I didn't know that you could do philosophy like that. Um, and it was a real challenge, but I, I think it was lots of fun to kind of dive in and just experience something differently. I guess what really grabbed me about it was just the, I don't know, like how visceral her stream of consciousness, because it was all about her experience of being and becoming a mother. And so I was just like, wow, this is like a far cry from sort of, you know, the very abstract or intellectual or removed Plato or something like that like <laughs> while we're just like ripping on Plato today um yeah I'm Gideon Strauss the academic dean at the Institute for Christian Studies a staple of everyday life here at the ICS is the rhythm of classes. Every week, senior and junior members gather to discuss shared texts and explore various philosophical, theological, and historical themes together. The classroom is where studying at the ICS most obviously becomes a communal project. For this segment, we're attempting to bridge the divide between the classroom and life. So we are inviting our senior members to introduce us to some of their current and upcoming courses. Today, I am back here with Bob Sweetman for part three of our crash course in Reformational Philosophy. Reformational Philosophy is one of the introductory courses every student takes at the ICS. 
In our previous episode, we introduced one of the founders of Reformational philosophy, Hermann Duewert, and discussed how Abraham Kuyper's notion of sphere sovereignty informed Duewert's theory. This week, we're sticking with Duewert. Specifically, we'll be discussing his idea of ground motives as an exploration of what moves societies. So welcome back, Bob. Hermann Duewert, in his diagnosis of Western culture, introduces the notion of ground motives. What does Duewert mean by ground motives, Bob? Well, if I'm reading him correctly, I think uh, what he... Um, he has a deep sense, uh, and it's absolutely foundational for everything that he does philosophically, is that uh, our deepest religious connection to God uh, is the basis for our fundamental identity as human beings. So this comes to expression anthropologically and in his notion of the heart, uh, but then also uh, as communities. Um, and that as, a, as members of communities, uh, we are formed, as it were, to uh, spiritual dynamics um, that reside in the community. And that these dynamics push and move us, uh, particularly they push and move us in our capacity as historical agents, that is to say, uh, people and communities that are able to affect the course of history and change the world. And the, the name he gives for that spiritual dynamic uh, is a ground motive. Um, he followed up on uh, Kuiper's own sense of life and worldview. So this is a translation of life and worldview mm -hmm. uh, with respect to the historical process uh, rather than as a kind of uh, category or horizon within which to make sense of things. So it's it's more it's it's less a, a cognitive horizon and more a kind of action horizon. Mm -hmm. That is to say, uh, a dynamic. In fact, he often used the word dynamis, the Greek word, uh, for for the dynamic, the the movement in um, the world. In in this context, if if we're saying that Duevia talks about religious ground motives or spiritual dynamics, uh, could you say a little bit more about uh, his use of um, religious and spiritual? What might religion and spirituality mean in, this, in his usage? Yeah, uh, so um, he, uh, I think we talked already, or at least mentioned, uh, that he has a very complex modal ontology, and we'll talk about that more later on. That is to say that um, it, it, when he is examining um, our existence in time, he views it as um, constitutively uh, complex. Uh, in other words, there are a, a variety of irreducible modes uh, of existence, hows of existence, and that uh, they cohere, uh, but they are irreducible, the one to the other. So each has a sovereignty in its own sphere. That's how he translated that uh, Kuyperian uh, term of art, uh, mm -hmm. sphere sovereignty, um, or at least one of the ways that he translated it. Uh, but uh, that coherence bespeaks a unity. And he saw this unity as actually coming to the temporal horizon and hence 
being prior to the temporal horizon or above was his his metaphor. Uh, and it's it's in that unity that is prior and above the complexity of our temporal experience uh, that uh, the the dynamics that move that that manifest themselves throughout all the different dimensions of temporal existence uh, find their home, you might say, and that was the realm of the spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, or heart, if when he was thinking anthropologically, he talked about the heart, and he related that to Old Testament language about the heart as a kind of metonymy for the whole human person, the living soul, another metonymy from Scripture. And that 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 place of unity is also that place where we find ourselves both as individuals and as the com- uh, the communion of persons. But I would say the communion of creation might be. Uh, a better way of saying that, uh, before our maker. So this is the deepest place in which the God-human encounter takes place. So to illustrate what Duivert means by religious ground motives, in the context of the Europe uh, of the middle of the 20th century, when he is writing about this, he identifies a number of religious ground motives that influenced uh, European culture. Could you maybe talk about w- what religious ground motives he identifies and how he understands them? Sure. Uh, he uh, the, the the dominant worldview or uh, ground motive, sorry, um, that that he works with is the nature is he calls the nature freedom ground ground motive. So um, it's a ground motive that uh, emerged out of the uh, Enlightenment and pre-Enlightenment uh, investment in scientific reason and rationality. So and with its control ethos. So it's about uh, human beings have the capacity um, by observation and conceptualization to uh, to see pattern in the world and patterns that allow for human control. Um, And of course, this was uh, viewed in in kind of universal terms as one uh, primary value is precisely this kind of rationality and control. Uh, But then balanced off against that uh, and in tension with it was uh, a commitment to human freedom. Uh, that is to say, I think human freedom uh, that is somehow tied uh, to um, more, a moral, moral responsibility. So f- you, only where you're free can you be morally responsible. So a certain ideal of the human person in a sense. Yeah. So, so you, what you have is a, a, an ideal that has uh, two poles that are in tension. And so what you get in in the sphere of human life that is dominated by this particular ground motive is a, a struggle to understand the relationship between these two values mm-hmm. because they, they, they exist in tension with each other. And so if I understand it correctly, for, for Duvier, this ground motive, this communal dynamic is something that emerges sometime around the Renaissance, becomes dominant in Europe around the Enlightenment, but it's not simply reducible to the Enlightenment because it no. contains the Romantic movement and various other sort of yes. back-and-forth movements of this tension between freedom and control. Right. 
Yeah, and so I mean that that might be one of the ways of looking at um, you know the late modernity on the one hand, and you could you know take a, a hyperbole of that, uh, the new atheists and Richard Dawkins, mm-hmm. people like that. Uh, that on the one hand, and uh, the the postmodern turn uh, in its you know particularly in its wilder moments, say a Zizek. So if you think of Richard Dawkins on the one hand and Slavoj Zizek on the other, you might say, well, there's you know there's a personification of the both the tension and the dynamism produced by the tension of a commitment to nature on the one hand and freedom on the other. Yeah, and so so while for Duvier this this religious ground motive that you've just described, kind of modernity, I guess, is not the only religious ground motive present in the Europe of his time. Could you maybe elaborate on some? Sure. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the uh, Kuyperian uh, revival, you might say, of uh, a certain kind of Calvinism in the Netherlands is part of a revival within uh, an intellectual revival within Christianity as a whole. So you have, uh, for example, in France, this massive uh, uh, intellectual revival uh, in, in the Catholic world um, that, you know, scared the pants off uh, uh, se- secular parts of the academy and society. And Doivert's understanding of uh, what drove or drives this, uh, this vibrant Catholic culture is uh, a commitment to uh, nature on the one hand, that is to say uh, the existence of uh, a-, a bodily realm, you might say, and the bodily, uh, on the one hand, and uh, um, uh, grace on the other. That is, so there is, as it were, a hard-headed but uh, perfectly um, complete um, experience of human life possible that uh, is completely bounded, you might say, by uh, our, our, temp- our temporality and our bodiliness. That on the one hand, and then there is this more than of the uh, presence and action of God in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, grace, the surprise, right, that uh, opens up nature and makes other things possible and, you know, that perfects nature. But the way he read that is that there's a tension between these two uh, values or commitments. So within and, this Catholic religious... Right, government. within this Catholic religious um, dynamism, uh, and that that tension drives it. Uh, it gives it its power on the one hand, but also works in such a way that um, you might say that for someone who is, um, well, this, I, I almost choke saying this because, of course, I, I, I operate with a different spirit about these things, but, you know, that, that makes the shoe pinch, so mm-hmm. to speak, for real biblical Christians. So, you know, he's not the most ecumenical <laughs> soul in the world, and so I just have to admit that that's just part of him. In, in a moment, I want to move uh, forward to, to some of the trouble that people have with Duerweert's um, use of religious ground motives as a, a, a way of analyzing cultural context. But before we go there, I want to talk just a little bit more about worldview and ground motive or worldview and religious ground motive. So Kaper, Abraham Kaper in the 19th century 
leans very heavily on this metaphorical terminology of a world and life view, a certain way of looking at the world, drawing on um, sensory emotional um, analogy. Duerweert uh, talks about religious ground motive drawing on uh, terminology that derives from physics, you know, from energy, but has reference to history and historical movement. From your perspective, what are the pros and cons between talking about world and life view, talking about religious ground motive? If you if you were limited to those two, yeah, I mean, I'll 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 just uh, indicate a difference in a very schematic way. Um, so Kuiper comes to his sense of uh, the world engagement uh, that is a part and parcel of Christian life from a doctrinalist reaffirmation of uh, the centrality of um, intellectual content uh, in the life of faith. Mm. So he, he's a doctrinalist. Um, his conversion is mm. to an Orthodox community that takes uh, confessional uh, statements and so on and so forth very seriously. So world and life view uh, is in the first instance, you might say, an intellectual anchor and then drawing out uh, the implications for our concrete living. Um, Dolivet uh, comes to philosophy from political activism. I mean, his first job was uh, in, in the uh, anti-revolutionary party's uh, think tank in um, in The Hague. And so he's, it's really about uh, the movements that represent uh, the change of history, which, after all, isn't that what we're, we're about politically and so on and so forth. So uh, I think it's more, it, it, more, it more has to do with action and action theory and the practice of life. Uh, and he's less interested in, you know, what are the doctrinal statements and so on and so forth. And, and I would say that goes even to, you know, he identifies... Um, what he calls the biblical ground motive in terms of creation, fall, redemption. And there's, you know, you you can understand that uh, as the doctrine of creation, the doctrine of the fall, the doctrine of uh, redemption. And that's not what he means at all. In fact, what I would say is that that is a verbal pointer to a response to the world rather than um, a category sieve that allows you to, I, you know, identify intellectually or cognitively, you know, what belongs in the creation category and what belongs in the fall category and what belongs in the redemption category. Although that's often how he's been read. So um, I, I first encountered Herman Dreviert's writing on religious ground motives in a translation of newspaper articles in a volume that in English is called. Uh, roots of Western culture, if I'm not mistaken. And my sense of Duvier's approach to this analysis or perhaps diagnosis of the, the cultural realities of the Europe of his time is that in an almost journalistic manner, he, he paints with, a, with these very broad brushstrokes. By contrast, his co-founder of this tradition of reformational philosophy, Dirk Vollenhoven, who's also his brother-in-law, 
develops a, a historiographic approach, a way of specifically of, of studying the history of philosophy that's much more maybe pointillist, uh, much more detailed, um, a much more almost punctilious approach to making sense of much of the same world. Could you maybe introduce us a little bit to Vollenhoven's historiography and then we'll continue maybe talking about the differences in these approaches and, and what's up with that? Yes. Uh, Vollenhoven uh, studied theology at the Free University, became a minister in the Griffmeer uh, de Kerk, which was the denomination that... Uh, uh, looked to the Free University, uh, well, as one of the sources for uh, clerical formation. Uh, so he became uh, a minister. He served a church in The Hague mm -hmm. uh, and so on. But eventually he went back to uh, the Free University and uh, did a thesis in uh, the philosophy of mathematics. And that habit of uh, mathematical thinking created a kind of permanent style. So you, you use the word historiography. You have to take that quite seriously. Graphing historical ideas in terms of a vertical axis and a horizontal axis. That uh, graph, that tendency to graph is, is extremely important for him. And um, he went to work. I mean, his sense of working in philosophy is very much, uh, you know, emerges out of his um, mathematical sensibility and, of course, his long struggle with um, uh, positivism. So he's looking to add true statements to the pile of true statements we human beings come up with and so on, and realizes that those true statements come in a context, so in a, in a way that you might say has some resonances with Wittgenstein. There are circumspective horizons that frame our statements, uh, and those circumspective configurations of thought are what he comes to focus on in his historiography. And there are many of them. So not um, two, three, or four religious ground motives. No, but. no, just tons of different configurations. Now, he's convinced that um, these circumspective figures um, uh, emerge from the deep places of life. So he has a sense of uh, that they have a kind of religious character to them. So this is that similarity between Kuiper, Duivier. Yeah, and he that. never wrote against uh, the use of ground motives and so on. He's, uh, but that's just not how he went to work. But he wasn't nearly as involved uh, in the business of mobilizing uh, the Christian the Christian community, the anti-revolutionary Christian community, to be active politically and so on. So he thinks in terms of graphs. He thinks in terms of A and B, A and not A, so on and so forth. Doivit, because he's, you know, the, he's a mobilizer, he thinks in terms of stories. And I think, you know, you can tell a story about the passage of a ground motive through time, uh, in a way that um, is harder to tell uh, the story of a given thought configuration. Um, there is an implicit story in Vollenhoven's historiography, but you have to work very hard to see the forest for the trees. Mm -hmm. If you were to think um, about 
our very local history, the history of the Institute for Christian Studies, could you maybe tell us a little bit of the story of how these two approaches have been picked up by one or more of the people in our school subsequent to their own time? Yeah, so our first political theorist, Bernard Zylstra, was a Dovidian right down to his DNA on this score. So he was definitely a, a ground motive person. Um, Calvin Seervelt probably owes the most of anyone to uh, um, to Vollenhoven's problem historical method, he's developed a uh, an equivalent for aesthetic phenomena. So it can, you know it can't be about logical conceptions, but it's about artistic um, orientations. But they do have a kind of determinateness. You can you can talk about them. You can point out boundaries and so on and so forth. So. Uh, so you have that. Uh, Jim Oltheis uh, has a very creative appropriation of Vollenhoven rather than uh, Dovid. Um So he uses uh, that part that is particularly useful when reading um, you know, the greats of 20th century Protestant theology. Uh, Hendrik Hart, uh, early in his career, used Vollenhoven uh, a great deal. Um, but because he tended to teach out of Dovid, because it was available in English, he tended, to, you know, to use um, uh, ground motive stuff too. That he, I mean, he found that uh, helpful as well. And what's very interesting is that in South Africa, with a, a Donnie Strauss or uh, an H. Runner in Grand Rapids, Michigan, at Calvin College, they well, they attempted, and of course Strauss is picking up on his mentor Talliard. Uh, they attempted a, a synthesis of uh, ground motive and um, problem historical method. And it's, I've never been attracted to an attempt to synthesize. It, it strikes me that um, that is to force a unity, a sort of that there was a primordial unity, because then you can tell the story of any change as a fall from unity and so on and so forth. Uh, I don't think that's a helpful story. Traditions are in my view, um, multiplex. Uh, they're multiple right from the beginning, and that includes the Christian religion. Why should anyone give a damn? So why is it important for people outside of uh, the Institute for Christian Studies or for people outside the direct tradition of K. Pradovia and Wallenhofen to know about them, to know about their work, to know about these approaches? Well, there's a, c a couple of ways you could approach that. Uh, one, you can approach it from the point of view of people of faith. We live in an age from, from the 19th century on of, uh, of massive and accelerating processes of structural change. Uh, the reason, I mean, that was a trauma for the church uh, because it's, the church is a tradition in its understanding and therefore, uh, you know, uh, if one is tradition, so traditional in one's being in the world, not traditionalist, that's a different story, but traditional, um, the rate of change has to be always relatively slow. Uh, think, of it, think of it in terms of uh, a handcraft and the development of a handcraft. It's, like, it's much more like that than anything else, right? So you can make incremental changes, 
but the mastery of this century is very similar to the mastery of some past century and so on. So there are changes, but there are changes within a fairly stable environment. Uh, that stable environment doesn't exist historically from the, from the 19th century on. And the result is that the landmarks that have been in place in the, the formation of the Christian tradition as a self-articulate tradition, self-consciously articulate tradition, are changing. They're disappearing. So does this have anything to do with the modern world? This becomes a, a very, very pertinent question. The modern world is changing so fast, those landmarks are disappearing so quickly. How to be faithful in this world? That is a massive, massive question. And that is the question that the Reformational tradition and the Thomist tradition and, you know, mm -hmm. and there are Lutheran um, equivalents and so on and so forth. That's what, that's what we're all trying to figure out. And the Reformational community has come up with things uh, that have been very, very influential in the Netherlands and that have been part of, uh, you might say, the glory of uh, the Dutch response to modernity. I mean, not that it was ever perfect and, and, and so on, but there were things that you can still work with. So, okay, so the tradition that produces it is something that remains interesting and not just uh, for Christians of various, various stripes. And here's the second way in. Scholarship is by its very nature public. Mm -hmm. So, and it's, it's structured as tools, tools for thought. And the result is it's appropriable no matter where it's from. Of course, that's one of the causes of anxiety for Christians is mm -hmm. that are we just appropriating uh, tools that come with a spirit attached to them that will lead us further from our Lord and Savior, right? So that's, that's part of the anxiety. But the amazing thing is, is that if Christians come up with, with things that look, uh, that, uh, that seem helpful, they can be appropriated, and the grace, you might say, that's encoded within them be disseminated. Uh, a really good example in the Reformational tradition is the work of Andrew Basden, who uh, works with um, I, uh, the examination of IT systems. And he uses Doivet's modal scale because it, uh, it forces the theorists thinking about IT systems uh, away from overly, overly uh, redu reduced, uh, uh, an overly reduced horizon for, for his or her thought. So, you know, you have to think of the social and the ethical and the political and the historical and the this and the that, and the, the head spins, but it keeps you from a too narrow horizon. So in other words, problems can arise in all kinds of complex ways, and solutions can arise in all kinds of complex ways. And whatever the solution is, it's going to have to deal with the complexity of any historical phenomenon, right? So this has been picked up uh, by uh, scholars of a variety of different, you might say, religious stances, uh, because it's clearly useful. So you mm -hmm. have... For example, um, in, uh, in Sweden, uh, a real interest in Andrew Bazin's work. And you have all these people studying uh, Doivetian ontology as part and parcel of their very secular response to 
um, you know, this part of uh, our human experience. And this brings us to our final segment, What's Your Pleasure? This is where we and our weekly guests kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. Movies and television shows we're watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So, Bob, what's your pleasure? I, I guess um, it's, it's sort of a serendipitous discovery from yesterday. So yesterday was Ash Wednesday, and um, I was asked to read a poem uh, in my congregation's Ash Wednesday service. And it was a poem written by Walter Brueggemann, who is uh, a very, very prominent um, biblical theologian and Old Testament scholar. Uh, and it came from a book of prayers that he's published, which apparently is quite wonderful. But the poem was really good. And so, you know, to get these odd snapshots of, uh, you know, huge scholars, these books you've read with for, uh, for fun and profit, um, uh, 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 the, another side of their being, you know, it's it's almost uh, almost like uh, running into them in the mall, and they've you know they've got their grandkids, uh, you know, in a in a snuggly or something, you know. It's just like it's just does to bring him money in a snuggly. Yeah, well, he is a bit huggable. Oh wow! Oh, that sounds awesome. So uh, this being the day after Ash Wednesday, my pleasure is also an Ash Wednesday pleasure, and so a poignant pleasure. Um, uh, the church where I worship here in Toronto, Church of the Redeemer, um, has a wonderful music ministry, and as part of the Ash Wednesday Eucharist in the evening, uh, they use the music of Spignu uh, Preissner from his Requiem for a Friend, this is a requiem that he wrote for Krzysztof Kieslowski, the film director, and uh, two of the pieces from this is the Lacrimosa and the Kai Kairos, and they used that in the service last night, and it was just so beautiful. But it's not sweet beautiful, it's heart-wrenchingly beautiful. So, yeah. My pleasure, which I, I can't think of anything for Ash Wednesday, so it's going to be super... Uh, incoherent compared to all these other ones but i've just been recently listening to a lot of talking heads which has been great excellent yeah and i my watch, 80s teenage self thanks yeah, you yeah it's it's very i've recently been feeling very 80s and i watched the uh the live uh concert of uh, stop making sense the documentary slash it's mostly just a concert but I just love the idea of him standing up there with a guitar and like a boombox and just like a looping drum beat and just going at it. That's it for our show this week. We'll be back again with Bob and Gideon next week for the fourth episode of our series on reformational philosophy where we're going to talk about reformational ontology and all that entails. So please join us then. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics, and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can visit us at icscanada.edu. If anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can follow me as at Mark Standish, 
You can follow Gideon as at Gideon Strauss. And you can also follow ICS as at INSCHR. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, follow along with us on Spotify, or find us on your podcast app of choice. Remember, following and reviewing the podcast helps people find us and keeps us on the radar. Most importantly, tell your friends. Tell your friends.